When I found out I was gonna be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. And we're back. It's another episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm disappointed too. Uh, I'm Louis Fertel. <laughs> Welcome to all this. I threw my hands up in the air. Disappointed, despairing. I got to tell you, we're going to talk about Elvis this week, everyone. We're going to talk about music and white theft. Um, probably the BET Awards, because that involves white theft, too. Um, My and- favorite Jimmy Cagney movie, by the way, White <laughs> Theft. <laughs> My favorite Madonna song is White Theft. Oh, my God. We need to get into the true blue era. Uh, he's referencing White Heat, which was a tribute itself to Jimmy Cagney. But if I was you're not, talking about Vogue. Oh, that true? That's, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's an, <laughs> a joke the true blue non-singles. Joke. Yes, yes. The true blue non-singles, really full of uh, bubblegummy endorphins for all time. I was also just listening to Jody Watley's 80s output, which sounds a lot like true blue. So this has been on my mind. I was actually thinking about you yes, the other day when I saw um, my friend Lucas's uncle, um, Bruce Bozzi, um, who you might know at this party. Um, and he was wearing a vintage like Madonna erotica shirt. Mm. I will never forget when I interviewed Lady Gaga for The Advocate in 2008. I was her first interview for The Advocate. I said to her, at the time, she was like a known Madonna fan and would just talk mm-hmm. about Madonna in interviews. This is, of course, a far away, long ago era. This is not the same era we live in now. But <laughs> I said, what's your favorite Madonna era? And she goes, hmm erotica because they couldn't even play it at 2.30 in the morning or they had to play it at 2.30 in the morning and I remember thinking at the time oh she actually does know she's like she's like watched the MTV behind the scenes documentaries and stuff she's Mm -hmm. really up to date on uh, Madonna so that's kept me impressed with Lady Gaga ever since you know they only air keep it at 2.30 in the mornings on on um, podcast one Oh, that's right. <laughs> Next to 120 minutes. What other what other shows would be on in the middle of the night on MTV? Undressed. Yeah. Um, speaking of another Madonna connection, uh, we're interviewing Jenny Slate today, who um, has her latest film, Marcel, The Shot with the Shoes On, and Isabella Rossellini is in that film, and Isabella Rossellini is in The Sex Book. As she should be. The sex book would be incomplete without her. I was, by the way, at uh, San Francisco Pride over the weekend, and my friend Jan Hatchel, who's a Twitter gay, nice guy. I uh, love Jan. Yeah, he's a huge Kylie fan, but he's also a huge Madonna fan. And in his living room, he had the sex book open. And the picture that was on his coffee table for everybody to see is Madonna like chewing on a guy's ass. And I just want to say, among the ways she was ahead of her time, Putting ass eating out there, as in <laughs> eating a dude's ass. I mean, God, that 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 took like twenty three years after that to get into vogue. <laughs> um, I think I think there needs to be some re- sort of reunion of everyone who's in the sex book. 
Oh yeah, Big Daddy Kane and uh, uh, all the Tony Ward, all those models that are in the book. Yeah, I love whenever like whatever Twitter like rediscovers like Big Daddy Kane like being in the book, but also being like sexy in that period. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, Helen Mirren's a big fan of the sex book. That's when I became a Helen Mirren fan when she said Madonna knew exactly what she was doing then. By the way, I've taken notes recently. We've been told we talk about Madonna way too much on this podcast, and we are literally launching right into classic <laughs> Madonna. So, <laughs> fuck you. I like who we are. People have had it. Right. They've been, I mean, I, I sort of agree. Um, well, we're going to talk about Elvis this week. We're going to talk about Baz Luhrmann, our favorite director. You need to not say that to me while I'm sitting right here. <laughs> I, I, I can't hit you with a rolling pin from here. You know, I go back and forth on this man, and I used to call him the worst director because I yeah. rediscovered that I hate Moulin Rouge. Years later, turns out you were right, Michael Murray, um, <laughs> when you borrowed my DVD of Moulin Rouge in high school, returned it like 12 years later, and then were like... Ugh, it was bad. Yeah, it's only the Nicole performance I enjoy, but for instance, like the smells like teen spirit version, the like a virgin. I just, uh, it, I know there are gay people who love this movie, but it just felt like, I don't know, like a fancy pop up book or something with lots of colors in it. And then I'm like, okay, but let's close the book. I don't want to have a seizure. Right. And then I saw Romeo and Juliet for the first time during the pandemic, and I wish I had not. Not good. The soundtrack's good. Yeah. And less said about Australia, the better. Though there is a scene with, I believe, a kangaroo in it early. No, there's a scene with a car accident early on where Nicole gets to do hard, um, broad, borderline commedia dell'arte acting. <laughs> and that I support. Um, but Elvis, I think I like it. So we're going to get into that. I'll reserve my opinion until it is time for me to have the opinion. But we'll get into it. Okay, well, we will be right back with more Keep It. This week on What A Day, Travel interviews Peppermint of Drag Race and finds out if she'd ever compete on All Stars. The suspense is killing us. Plus, Joan Jett Black and Taylor Alexander stop by to talk about drag as political action. Listen to new episodes of What a Day, weekday mornings, wherever you get your podcasts. Baz Luhrmann's Elvis biopic opened this weekend, beating out Top Gun Maverick to the top of the box office and earning mostly positive reviews, especially for Austin Butler's performance. It's the latest dizzying music-filled film from Lerman, and we have thoughts. I first want to say, film is back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Go on, (laughs) IndieWire.com. What do you mean? Uh, I will say, though, that apparently this weekend was like one of the first weekends where um, the four top films made over $20 at the box office. Oh, that's like it's the last time it happened since 2018. So okay, I am encouraged by that. Bad. And also, by the way, I want to say that I'm very surprised that Top Gun lost out to Elvis because yeah. I was just thinking the cultural memory of Elvis. I feel has taken a major hit in the past 15 years. For instance, when I was in high school or younger, you would grow up and see 
you know, maybe a family member even would have collectible Elvis memorabilia or, you know, there'd be commercials for Elvis compilations. When we were in high school, there was the Elvis number ones collection with uh, mm-hmm. the Junkie XL remix of A Little Less Conversation that we still love, right? What a great uh, remix. But um, I just don't feel like there are many inroads to knowing who Elvis even was anymore. Like, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody under the age of 25 who knows about you couldn't they had to film him from the waist up on Ed Sullivan or you know even where the phrase Elvis has left the building has come from so Mm. the fact that we're getting this movie now at a time where I feel like the entire memory of the 1950s has to do with either a kind of Pleasantville vision of suburbia or Mad Men or water uh, hoses is interesting yes um (laughs) so so I'm I'm pleased we get an Elvis movie I guess we did have being the Ricardos recently too Mm-hmm. But um, for instance, Marilyn Monroe, that's an image people still remember. And Elvis, I feel like, has, has just withered a bit. But, well, um, yeah. we need Kim K to start walking around wearing Elvis's suits. I mean, don't give her ideas. I mean, <laughs> sounds like she'll just do it. I will say, actually, speaking of one of those, one of the most iconic moments uh, of someone like doing an Elvis sort of like um, thing um, with one of his suits was, uh, I feel like people watching this film are maybe even too young to, to remember the the time when Britney did her first Vegas show and she was wearing the well Elvis all white suit. Oh, right. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. And, and that would have been a reference to him back when we were still constantly making references to him. And it's, it excited me like looking up Elvis stuff after this. Like I always love doing that after a biopic, mostly because you get to remember that, pop culture is always referencing itself like you may think that like we talk about it now in a way that like people didn't discuss it before but they did and you 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 think of like colonel parker um and we'll get into tom hanks's portrayal of this man uh which is unhinged uh to to, you know what it was giving to to me lightly we already brought up Goosebumps this episode. I'll bring up another 90s favorite of this podcast. He was giving Dr. Vink from Are You Afraid of the Dark? With the who just shows up, Yeah. <laughs> you know, sh- showing up with an amulet and, and, and tempting you with something strange. Like, I didn't realize Colonel Tom Parker was so like uh, uh, Maria Uspenskaya esque, you know, like a, a, a strange a, quote, gypsy woman here to ensnare Elvis. Um, but I was looking up like references to Colonel Parker, right? And apparently there's like, there's like even like an old Flintstones episode where, um, you remember the Flintstones episode where um, Fred um, records an album? And, no, like, a but... single. He records a single and then like he becomes like a like a pop star briefly. And like there's like a Colonel Parker esque character who becomes his manager. So like even in like nineteen sixty one, like people knew who Elvis's manager was and were making fun of him in right. like a car- an animated cartoon for kids. Yeah, right. That seems very animaniacs of, of the Flintstones. I'm surprised they had the gall and the nerve. I feel like every old Flintstones episode is actually a pop culture reference to something that was going on at the time. Well, of course, the entire show is. You know, yeah. uh, Jackie Gleason was considering suing because it's just a ripoff of the Honeymooners uh, in every in every way. It's just the Honeymooners. Um, but first, let's talk about Austin Butler, who I thought was fucking amazing, and I would say there's not enough of him in the movie. 
Yes, to me, this movie has the problem that, and I'm sorry to do this, I just brought up Madonna, that Evita <laughs> has, where it feels like it's all music video and fast segues, and you never feel like you're just in a scene with the with the person the movie is supposed to be about. Like, you never feel like you're getting to the heart of Elvis. You're just watching a montage of Elvis. I would almost relate it to Lerman's um, Great Gatsby, you know, where you have um, this narrator talking about, you know, Leo's character, uh, which makes sense because that's how the book is actually written. But Tom Hanks is narrating this entire fucking movie and you're getting all this bat story about him. And I'm like, can I just watch a movie about Elvis? Yeah, because you also don't get really a fully dimensional take on Colonel Tom Parker either. You just understand that he's a scheming, um, manipulative, so-called snowman who uh, ensnares Elvis. That's it. You don't get to the like. And at the end, he's sick. You know, there, there's nothing more interesting there. There's, you know, the dynamic doesn't really deepen between that character and Elvis either. But um, to me, this also, movie, snow, oh, the, the snowman, as he's referred to, every time they say snow job in the movie, I kept thinking of stepmom. <laughs> right. Austin Butler. Yes, he's good. There's something about the way Austin Butler looks where he does resemble Elvis in certain ways. And I think in particular, they really nail it during the Elvis comeback years. So late 60s, I think in mm -hmm. particular he does. But there's something about the way he looks where it's just, it's on and also extremely off to compare it to another Tom Hanks movie, The Polar Express. There's something <laughs> lifelike and Elvis-like about him. And then also, he's like a totally different person. He looks like... Um, uh, now we call this uh, Adore Delano, but who used to be Danny Noriega on American Idol. That's who he kept looking like to me. Mm, yeah, I thought the performance was good. And, and and I just do wish that we had more scenes with Austin Butler um, because I feel like there's moments where he's really tapped into the role. Like, he, yeah. I think he's so, like, really into Elvis. And it makes sense because the entire press tour was giving you um, Gaga on A Star is Born. Right. Um, and Gaga Gaga and House of Gucci, uh, which is which is actually hilarious because the end of the movie, um, I did not realize that Elvis was once being considered to be the um Chris Christopherson role in A Star is Born. And death took that opportunity away from him, but what really should have taken it away from him is that it's the world's longest fucking movie. And it is also <laughs> terrible, and I blame Barbara. Can you imagine if he had been in that? I mean, he would have been a better actor than Chris Christopherson, as my dad will tell you. That was That's my dad's one pop culture sticking point, is that Chris Christopherson was such a bad actor. And we put him in tons of movies at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the movie truly just sort of ignores the character that you came to see. I think like it, it feels very Baz Luhrmann in that he has ADD and has to focus on everything else that's happening and all the music and all the spectacle. It's some interesting way to get into the story, but... Tom Hanks in this fat suit as Colonel Parker was the most absurd thing I have seen on screen in quite some time. It is simultaneously worse and somehow more mesmerizing than Jared Leto and House of Gucci. Yes. Well, I will say it's a little bit, it's not as extreme as Jared Leto and House of Gucci, but it is jarring where does so the accent is, come from no you're telling me that's how colonel tom parker it talked? is not it is not i've watched video <laughs> clips that is not how colonel tom parker talks 
it makes no sense. Uh, and uh, also just a weird role for Tom Hanks to take. Ultimately, I, I don't feel like it taps into the best of his abilities. You know, I think of great Tom Hanks roles and I think of empathy or uh, uh, I guess just that. That's what he brings. And <laughs> in this role, I, I, I needed like a slightly more menacing quality. I think I think I needed to be a little bit more afraid of Tom Parker in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's it. it it, I feel like it's a bit like Road to Perdition where he's playing against type, where he played like yeah. a mobster in that film, but it's so out of left field and it feels like it's like nothing really commits in it because we also don't know anything about this man. I had to like Google after to find out like how he was born in the Netherlands and illegally immigrated to the U.S., but like never fully got his citizenship here, but renounced his Netherlands citizenship. So he sort of was like a man with no country. Mm hmm. I think also this movie just needed to have a little bit more to say about Elvis. I'm glad that we went through all the eras because obviously we got musical performances and um just all, all these songs that are really great. Obviously, Elvis's music is great. But I feel like the best version of this movie would have just focused on the comeback era. where Because then when you get, first of all, the best Elvis special where he's on that square stage in the round and people are you know cheering for him as he brings back all these old hits and he's not a has-been anymore. You also get the crux of his relationship with Colonel Tom Parker, who's you know, trying to force him into making a Christmas special, into performing these very safe songs. And Elvis is, you know, uh, turning all these uh, famous other hits on their head and creating a whole new generation of fans for himself. I think maybe if we had just focused on that, we would have gotten a more complete story. Because otherwise, what does this movie have to say about Elvis? It's saying he got popular. And by the way, it has nothing to say about how fast he got popular, other than he did know B.B. King and he did know Rosetta Tharp. So there was some relationship with black artists that's important to him. Let's and get he, into that. Yeah. This movie, you would think it was midnight in Paris, the way he was mingling with these people, <laughs> yeah. which which is which is actually um, not true with how he actually related to bb king uh you know like, like they would have met um a couple times i've read i read up about it but they weren't just like hanging out uh at the local blues store um doing you know like like bebopping with each other and yeah. i do want to say that an elvis film should explore obviously what we now know about elvis with that he um took you know like music and recordings like that black people had done you know and like was able to be successful and popular because he was white i think that the film touches on that and i think obviously you know like elvis was supremely talented as well um but it doesn't really touch on that and like what it means in terms of just like the music industry and it instead becomes this weird film where he's this like white kid who like stumbles into like um a um baptist church you know and then like is like taken over by the music it was sort of like the opening of um eyes of tammy Faye. i'm tired of seeing this scene in films where like the young kid wanders into uh church and then uh, all of a sudden is taken over by the holy spirit uh and <laughs> then it felt absurd where there are turning points in elvis's life that are just like 
black uh like black things happening in the world are sort of like um the impetus for yes. him growing particularly when he is sobbing to Martin Luther King being shot and it is sort of like helping propel him uh, into who he wants to be artistically and then when um RFK is shot and it propels him again, even though RMK was actually shot during rehearsals. Uh, and so that actually did shake him a bit. But there just seemed to be so many moments, you know, where, like, it feels like MLK and, like, the civil rights movement and all this turmoil is, um, you know, like, weighing on Elvis's soul and making him become the musician he's supposed to be. Well, also, it, I would say this is a movie about Elvis periodically watching the news. That's what it is. You know, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm messing with the guitar here and turning to my left. Oh, MLK. He always said the right thing. Like, what? That's what you have to say about MLK? By the way, I don't know if he was talking to anybody in particular during that scene. I mean, it was hilarious, right? And then the moment when Colonel Parker feels like um, one of those um, Republicans on Twitter who always likes to um, use one of um, the random older quotes of MLK um, that sort of aligns with what they have to say. When he leaves the room, he's like, you know, MLK said rock and roll was evil. <laughs> right. People say lots of stuff. You can use whatever they say to justify whatever, wherever you're coming I'm from. I'm sure I said Fifi Dobson was evil at some point in 2002. <laughs> <laughs> when she was a threat to take over, I remember. It was Pink versus Phoebe Dobson, and, you know, the world went one way. Um, oh, well, let's just talk about the music for a second, though. Do you have a favorite Elvis song they featured? At the end, they played In the Ghetto, which I think is one of Elvis's crowning achievements, and I'm glad that they we got a, basically an entirely full performance of Suspicious Minds. I love Suspicious Minds. Mm-hmm. Like the, the suspicious minds is just one of my favorite fucking songs, uh, and I think it's beautiful. Uh, I actually, I'm shocked that we didn't hear much of Blue Suede Shoes. Um, and I was, I was. Sometimes I think, does Blue Velvet is Blue Velvet an Elvis song, or is Blue Suede Shoes an Elvis song? And mostly, Blue Velvet was a Lana Del Rey cover um, of the. It wasn't an originally Tony Bennett song. Yeah, it went through several versions. Yeah, I mean, when, when, whenever like Lana Del Rey wistfully sings something, I just always assume it used to be an Elvis song. <laughs> um, uh, also, Blue Suede Shoes, the rare case of Elvis lifting from a white artist, because that was a Carl Perkins song originally. Um, but I don't know. I mean, th- there's some others. I mean, I'm glad we didn't hear All Shook Up. Uh, you, you're glad we didn't hear it. I'm glad we didn't hear it because I think, you know, I'm still haunted by that um, stage production. Oh, of course. Is that also the one that maybe Celine Dion covered once upon a time? Oh, she no. She wore an Elvis suit while doing um, You Shook Me All Night Long. Okay, well, then that's her fault. Dramaturgically, <laughs> she messed up. <laughs> As a historian, I'm disoriented now. <laughs> also, do you know what I kind of wish they had gotten into more? And I just want to say it's an extremely long movie, so there had to have been time somehow. But Elvis's movie career, like after he comes back from Germany, after he comes back from being drafted, I needed to see Anne Margaret in this film a little bit. I mm. needed to see uh, uh, 
do you know who Carolyn Jones is? She played Morticia Adams in the original Adams Family. And mm-hmm. she, she she did a movie with him called King Creel, which I think is probably the best Elvis performance and maybe movie. But um, I would have loved to see her haunted ass face in this movie. She's also an Oscar nominee, nominated for The Bachelor Party, one of the first uh, Patty Shayevsky, uh written films. But um, you, you, I mean, honestly, if honestly, if this movie were truncated. I think I would maybe even consider giving it a thumbs up, but it's it very really, long. It, it's yeah, very it's kitchen sinky. Yeah, um, I, and Wikipedia e. Yeah, it, it's very long, and yet also doesn't include enough. Where's I need the Priscilla film? How do you leave yeah. out the fact that Priscilla was uh, having an affair with Elvis's karate instructor? <laughs> How do you leave that out? And that he hires. He thought about hiring a hitman to kill the instructor. And that's why he knows karate uh, as he was doing, you know, in the special. And then, like, later does it when, like, someone runs up on stage after him. And also, um, I need the Priscilla film just to take place after Elvis's death for when she was on uh, Dallas for five years. That should just be a movie. Priscilla Presley on Dallas for five years. Let's just get into that miniseries. (laughs) And also, again, there really should be a, a in the maybe post credit sequence in this movie. They should go through explaining how it is Riley Keogh, Elvis's granddaughter, is such a good actress because it simply doesn't make sense compared to what Elvis would bring on the silver screen, generally speaking. <laughs> um, one of the shocks, by the way, um, was seeing Dacre Montgomery from Stranger Things, who was so hot, um, playing Steve Binder. Um, who was, you know, Elvis's like collaborator on the 68 special, but he also directed Diana Ross live in Central Park. Oh, wait, is that the one where it's raining on her? Yes. Uh, one of the unbelievable, heroic performances of our time. <laughs> you got to YouTube that if you're unfamiliar. I love when they used to play that like in gay bars all the time, but you know what? We've lost our history. <laughs> We do. We need to support specifically these gay bars, and I'm thinking of one in Palm Springs. I'm pretty sure I brought it up recently. That just play, yeah, uh, quads that just plays VHS tapes or converted VHS tapes to CDs mm-hmm. of old television specials. You know, I'm talking about grainy Liza with the Z bars. That's what I want. <laughs> he also directed the Star Wars holiday special. Legend, legendaric. A, a word I rarely say. <laughs> Where's Steve Binders? Uh, biopic. So, in in short, the movie does have some good things going on, but it also has 7,000 other things going on. And one of them really isn't a meaty role for Austin. Yeah. I mean, listen, I thought he ate, but I would like to, I would, I would have liked him to have a full meal. You know? <laughs> yes. Yes, he just, it was just a peanut butter and banana sandwich. You know, it was, he, that's not going to fill you up. <laughs> It was past apps, okay? Like, Baz Luhrmann was <laughs> handing out canapes. <laughs> and there was a whole there was a whole fucking, like, turkey in the back, okay? There was mac and cheese. There were other side dishes. But Baz Luhrmann is never interested in that. No. Uh, in fact, I, I can just fully say I, I just don't like his filmography. I brought up before how his greatest accomplishment is Elizabeth Debicki's performance in The Great Gatsby, but something about Moulin Rouge, even like Strictly Ballroom, after 20 minutes, how do you not get it already? Like, you, like he delivers on a vibe and delivers on a kind of frenetic, um, thrillingly random thing, and then he keeps doing that. 
like you can't keep being random. You have to like settle in something. You have to, I don't know, endear us a little bit as opposed to just, you know, throttle us with spectacle, which is his only mode of artistry. I feel like maybe he should do like short films or something, if only because even when he was doing television, like the, uh, the pilot for The Get Down, uh, which, you know, I, I loved um, parts of The Get Down, but like even that is like sort of all over the place, you know, and it's just I have just come to the conclusion that like I, I don't think he's a great director. I think he does. Think yeah, he does vibe the music. The music montages and elements are always fucking fantastic. But when he has to deliver drama, anything with like a dramatic weight or purpose, um, when there's no music playing, it it's, it's useless. I also think our country is still in debt from what the get down cost. So uh, <laughs> I blame him for our current economic struggles. Gas is gas prices are up because of Baz Luhrmann securing the rights to whatever funk classic he had at the beginning of the get down favorite moments um did include um elvis um sitting on the hollywood sign to clear his oh. mind <laughs> that was so out of like an apple commercial starring elvis <laughs> And also, by the way, I just want to be clear. Elvis takes a meeting at the Hollywood sign yes. where he talks about uh, it's, it's, it's when the comeback special is about to happen. And he's sitting there uh, remarking on oh, when I first came to Hollywood, I used to sit up here and think of being James Dean in uh, Rebel Without a Cause, a name that comes up a couple of times in this movie. And then he asks whoever these people are to comment that his career is in the toilet. And then he says, I knew I liked you. And then they become collaborators. Uh, also, Elvis wants to fuck his mother in this film. Yes, they have a very close relationship. Their faces also, are always rubbing against one another in scenes, and I was like, what is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> also, his childhood was just exactly Nightmare Alley, right? Up and down. <laughs> it's a misty carnival with, you know, <laughs> freaks in the background and a little bit of debauchery. It's like he when the night when Nightmare Alley came out, Baz had to be like, "Damn it, bitch, that was my thing." <laughs> I'm still giving it a thumbs up. I love that we've okay. just shifted into at the movies now. I, I, I'm totally down for it. Please, <laughs> you, you ever just watch Siskel and Eber? Oh my god, it's so watchable. Can we backdoor keep it just into an at the movies reboot? I think that's easy. I mean, yeah. who's doing that right now? Come on, I pick us. Um, but no thumbs up from you. Do you give it one of those old, um, like, um, middle thumbs? The oh my God. Thumb? There's a, uh, <laughs> Sesame Street episode, if I'm not mistaken, with Siskel and Ebert, where Ebert tries flying the half thumb or a thumbs halfway up. Uh, and it doesn't go over well with Gene, as you can imagine. Uh, do I give it a halfway up? I would say thumbs down just because I don't know. It, it nothing was lasting about it. Ultimately, like everything Baz Luhrmann does, is just a, you know, a glittery cookie you throw down the hatch. I think it's I think it's something to experience. I don't know if I I don't know if it's an amazing film. It's not. Um, but I would suggest that anyone see this in theaters. It feels like cinema to me, even though it is a mess. Okay, so 
you're all over the place as usual, but going with thumbs up ultimately. <laughs> you love mess, quote. I do. The Saints, do. Maria Kondo. Yeah. When we're back, we're joined by the immaculate Jenny Slate. Keep It is brought to you by Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof, what a life I've had. Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, these prompts were created in collaboration with GLAAD, so they are by the people, for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted it. <laughs> Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest. Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover. The shirtless one. You just turned to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah. I broke the fourth wall. <laughs> You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when. It feels affirming when others, blank. I connect to my community by, I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. I'm going to say, whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal, when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include, my chosen family is the best at, and gender euphoria looks like. Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. You've seen her in so many things. Parks and Rec, The Kroll Show, Obvious Child, and heard her iconic and very lovely and soothing voice in Bob's Burgers, Zootopia, Q-Force, and now she's returning to her breakout role as Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Don't be suspicious. It's Jenny Slate. Welcome to Keep It. <laughs> oh, hi. Thank you for having me. Don't be suspicious indeed. <laughs> Don't be. Uh, I Truly, though, your voice is the most soothing thing ever heard uh it's like i want i want more than marcel i want i want books on tape i want i just i want like a more podcast things i want i just want to listen to your voice at all times Jeez, and i want all those compliments so <laughs> let's get into <laughs> business together i um it's so funny i i that's so nice to hear and also i i when i was little like not because i liked how my voice sounded but i just thought it was fascinating that you could you could like hear yourself and hear something new that you didn't think about when you were speaking and you thought you knew everything. I used to record myself all the time doing like really boring um, what's, you know, like sh what I thought would be shows for adults, but they would be like cooking radio shows, which maybe those exist now, but it would be like long instructions on how to cook something that I didn't know how to cook. So also it would be gross. <laughs> when you were a little kid, were, would people come up to you and just be like, you have an amazingly resonant voice. Let's figure out something to do with it. Or is this a talent you developed on your own? Because as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm just clutching the desk in front of me and enjoying it so much. So I'm sorry if that's creepy. It's true, though. No, it's not. Nobody ever said that to me growing up. And in fact, I never, ever thought about being um, 
uh, like a voice actor or anything like that or a radio person, I guess, you know, where you like you hear Terry Gross and her beautiful voice. And um, I never thought about it. I stumbled into my first voice work. I kind of still don't know how I got my first uh, like voice acting job, which was in the movie The Lorax. Um, Mm. I mean, I honestly, this is such a uh, like a sort of a um, what is it? A pessimistic thing to say or cynical, but. I, I guess I must have been part of a package. I, I actually really don't know. I'm like, why am I in this movie <laughs> at that at that time in my career? I mean, now I, I think, yes, I've done a lot of work and I've proved myself. But at the time, it was like the Lorax starring like Danny DeVito and Taylor Swift and Zac Efron and, and Betty White. And they were like, and Jenny. The <laughs> so it was odd. But I obviously didn't bat an eye. I, I had had a general with like, a, like a you know a preliminary meeting for those who aren't in the industry a general meeting aka a date with a stranger from your industry where you talk about professional things i'm the only one in the world who likes general meetings but i love them and i talked with this really nice lady and uh and then i ended up getting a part so maybe it was from that maybe I used to like them when, uh, you know, pre-pandemic general mm-hmm. meetings or set the stage for people listening where you would, you know, hop in the car and yeah. go like you, you like you. I don't know where you live, but like I would li- I lived in like um, West Hollywood. There was a period where I was living at like Virgil Village, but it's like every place mm-hmm. that you are assigned to have a meeting ends up being in Santa Monica. Or Burbank. Yeah, Studio uh, and, City, right? Yeah, so it's just, I enjoyed, you know, the the journey of being in the car alone. Um, and then you get there and you do meet a stranger. And it truly is like dating a stranger in your industry in the sense that you have that first date. You'd never see or hear from this person again, even though they're like, we got to work together. We got to do something together. And then six years later, you'll be like working on something. And that person will be like, oh, hey, I remember you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I find it's a real, first of all, I I know exactly what you're talking about. I love the long drive because also in that time, especially if you're meeting someone who's like, whatever, like important in one, like they run a, a, they run a company that's, that they make a lot of movies there or something. It's really important in the car ride to like, listen to the songs that remind you of yourself, you know, in the coolest Mm -hmm. way and make you feel really good. And, um, I like to sing really loud, get some energy out. And it's, I always found it to be, to be pretty fun. And then I actually think they are fruitful, but it's just an exercise in patience. It really Mm. is. Like somebody I had a general meeting with like five years ago. Now I'm um, doing like a couple projects with them, but it's, and I mean, almost everything now that I enjoy in my career um, took long, a long, 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 long time. Like I made my comedy special after doing about like 15 years of stand-up and I made the Marcel movie after 12 years of co-creating that character and you know like everything kind of seems to take me a long time including getting jobs from a general. (laughs) Now here's my problem with generals. I found I would always enjoy like the quote-unquote interview and the conversation and the the date-like atmosphere of it. But then, inevitably, you get to the part of the conversation where they're like, so what are you into right now? And I would say, like, the TV I liked. And maybe it's just I was meeting with too many men. But I would say I loved a show like Lady Dynamite with Maria Bamford. And it was like... it was, And it was like I had said... Oh, I, I love the works of Lenny Reifenstahl. Like people, like the, I, if you didn't say the number one most popular show, you were completely freaking them out. Yeah, yeah. You kind of like that is true, but I also 
there is no point in being there, at least for me, if if I'm to show something that doesn't really exist. You know, like I would much rather go in there and be like, oh, by the way, I also love Lady Dynamite. I'm I play the um therapist on that show who has sex with her brother. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Or I don't know if they go all the way, but they're definitely into each other and they're definitely doing some stuff. But um played by Jason Manzukis, who's incredible. But um, I think it's better to say what your true references are as a creative person because because if not, then you then they end up calling you for something if they do something that you really don't want to do. And then mm. you have to insult them. And at least for me, I live I have lived with the guilt that like I misrepresented myself or what I was interested in just to be included and like, ooh, what a fool's errand that is. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That'll slam you down in the end. It really sucks. <laughs> Um, I want to talk about, you know, the process in getting Marcel from, you know, the short, like, 12 years ago to, like, a feature-length film now. First of all, it's beautiful. Uh, I told a friend I told a friend I was seeing it, uh, my friend Juan, and he was like, I laughed, I cried, it was so emotional. And then I did all of those things. So uh, it's really a lovely film. But, like, where... Has your mind been with I create this character years ago and then I'm going to decide to make a film out of it, but also the process is gonna take so long? I think it's a little bit of, of what I was just saying, but then also really boosted by Dean Fleischer Camp, who I co-created this character with and um he directed the film and we co-wrote it with Nick Paley. Um I I think he is like a very, very good example of, of a true artist. And, um, and it works really well because we have really different personalities. Like <laughs> Dean is, he's really in terms of what he wants to do and what, what work he thinks is quality. He, he's really uncompromising. And that helped me to, in my own way, um, adopt that belief system and, and figure out how to stay there. But I think, it comes from being satisfied at first. Like we really liked the character. We really liked how he was and we, we liked his world. And so when we were presented with really just conversations from studios and stuff, like how do you, maybe we'll make this into a movie. And um, I, I don't remember those, those pathways really feeling like they worked for us. Um, and it wasn't a discussion at the time, but I think one thing that we knew is either we won't make a movie and we would have to be fine with that um, and just keep making shorts and and try to be happy that way. Or we will and it just won't be a traditional process. I, You know, you can't ask for everything. And um, I think the process also was long because we were moving through like really, really real feelings that we were both trying to understand as, as different people. Um, and it just everyone's like, oh, my gosh, you know, the movie took seven years to make and mm -hmm. it's not like every day you're on like day 30 and you're looking forward to year seven and being like how are we going to do this like looking up from the bottom of a mountain it's more like a general like i'd like to travel the world hopefully i will and you go like place by like moment by moment by moment it's not it didn't feel at least to me like my patience was running out or that i was strenuous and, and also there's like lots of different artists involved in in the film itself Speaking of um, non-traditional choices and a non-traditional journey, 
I have to bring up two words that I feel are very important in regards to this film, and they are Isabella Rossellini. Yeah. Um, there are very few celebrities nowadays who, it's not that she's intimidating. Actually, it's the opposite. It's that she has a regality, but also seems rad. Like she comes from the yeah. Ingrid Bergman universe, but she also seems to want to hang. And like, you know, her Instagram is full of life. She's, you know, just a, a cool, unusual celebrity. And I thought, was wondering, how did she get involved with this? Isabella is that kind of like living bridge from before to now. And um, not just because like she's here, but she also remembers, you know, um, Hollywood in, in in her own mother, Ingrid Bergman's time. But but that also she like just learns and learns and learns and learns all the time. She's always reaching for what interests her. And, um, you know, we thought it would be it was a very, very huge wish that she would be in the movie but I don't think we really thought we would get her uh at all and then I think her agents brought her the treatment we didn't we didn't start with the script although one ended up there ended up being a script after improvising and writing and improvising and writing and, and editing and improvising and writing whatever Isabella just saw the treatment like the long form paragraph document of what we thought the movie would be about. And she said that she had no idea who Marcel Michel was at all. So she was not a fan. Um, and her kids were. And her children told her, you should really do this. And that astounds me that as Isabella Rossellini, she came to our, you know, like where we were recording, which was like a, a house that we rented in Silver Lake, um, where Dean and I both lived. And uh, like we lived in that neighborhood and 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 rented a house there. And that's where we recorded. And um and she just showed up there and like ordered Postmates with us. Like that is the story. She was just willing to really do it how we were doing it. And that is incredible. We never even thought that far ahead. You know, when we thought, let's ask Isabella, we weren't like, oh, right. And then she'll like show up here where we're in like weird outfits and have microphones taped to our foreheads. And <laughs> she'll do that <laughs> with us and let our, let our like dogs sit on her. Crazy. <laughs> I love the fact, too, that, like, the recording got to be, you know, um, more organic with her being there because, you know, you, we've both done voice acting before, you know, and it's, yeah. I hate sort of, like, the fact that, you know, like, sometimes you'll just be not in the room with the people that you're working with, you know? Right. Uh, and I want to say that Isabella Rossellini did, I'm not shocked that she did this because she did, I don't know if you know my friend Stephen Dunn who created uh, The New Queerest Folk, but she did his movie, um, Closet Monster, where she yeah. played right. a hamster named Buffy, and that is truly one of the moments where I was like, I love this woman from that and um, her 30 rock character. Uh, oh, and the big from, beef and cheddar. Yes, yeah. The yes. big beef and cheddar line. The big beef and cheddar line <laughs> is in my head every day. Yeah. And her, it's never going to leave it. <laughs> nor should it. Yeah. She, I mean, she, she's like, she loves, I think she thrives on the experimental and she was like really genuinely fascinated by how we were mm -hmm. trying to do this movie. And well, she um, was married to David Lynch. So you must thrive on, the experimental yeah, you got to be into that and she was, <laughs> she was into that and um yeah you know like and we were really dedicated to having like natural sound uh we never recorded mm -hmm. in in a studio at all and when we were in nana connie her her character's garden we were actually at her farm which was like so nice of her she made us lunch oh. and 
showed us all of her animals. It was, it was crazy. <laughs> what is lunch from Isabel Rossellini? Like, does she make you ham sandwiches? Does she make you Tostitos pizza rolls? <laughs> you know that it was a beautiful feast. It was a beautiful <laughs> feast. You know, like lovely salads and grain-based dishes and a roasted chicken. And Ugh. she was at the head of the table and we were just in her house. And it's like beautiful old... To me, it, it almost seemed like like a converted, like it was a farmhouse, but also just like there was so much um, old, like old planks and stuff, you know? Mm. <laughs> now, do you have a favorite VO experience outside of the Marcel universe? Because you're so experienced with it now. And I imagine a lot of the time it's very tedious or you're having to get 700 takes of a single line. So I was wondering if it ever was just pleasurable and ideal. You know, it actually almost always is. I really like yeah. it. Um, it's such a weird job to have. I mean, obviously, I love in the past at like Bob's Burgers when we would all be together. And, you know, like we would just go on crazy runs that they would never put in the show. Just like me and Kristen Shaw doing whatever we wanted to do, you know. Um, yeah, like that that I love is the is the ensemble thing and just the shows that are so so funny i mean every time i record bob's burgers or the great north i feel like i just ruin so many takes by laughing so hard and that i enjoy and there are just so many it seems like a limiting um performance experience or something but it really isn't because actually you're just like putting everything into one tiny beam i i don't know if you feel this way but like that that's how i feel about it and during the pandemic I was I I live in Massachusetts most of the time and I was newly pregnant and I hadn't told anyone about that and um it sort of felt like double isolation in a way and so to be able to go into my little linen closet here and um just still do my acting basically was a was a major lifeline for me. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. It's it's a really fun and like um weird muscle to uh work out because I, I you know mm -hmm. like you said like listening to your voice um and discovering new things i think lewis and i have both gone through the process of i used to hate listening to anything that involved me and then there's uh -huh. also the point when you have to get used to what you hear in your head is completely yeah. different from what other people hear and like this voice doesn't exist um it's because it's rattling sometime in your skull or something um how do you practice or flex the muscle of coming up with different voices coming up with different ways for your voice to sound and like do you record it and then like listen to how it sounds or do you just go with i feel like it sounds different there's so much that gets lost like <laughs> And with my stand-up, too, like, there's just so much that gets lost. I did I did start re recording my stand-up a few years ago, like, four years ago, um, because I was, like, someone would be, like, remember that thing you said? And I would just be, like, no, I don't. And now I'll never know what it was. And it's so annoying because this is actually my job. Um, but then, you know what I mean? But then the second part of that is that, yeah, this is my job. But the only reason why I have it is because it's, like, an extension of how I'm, like, um, like, playful as a person. And so that's how it always starts is like seeing a weird object or finding my body in a weird posture or finding myself in a really weird situation and then uh, finding a like a voice to match that. It's weird that also I wouldn't just use my own voice, but that's not my um, that's not my inclination a lot of the times. And um, 
I feel like Marcel's the only voice I've ever created that I'm like, I don't really know another voice like that. Like I haven't, it's not, I'm not mimicking anything else. Everything else I'm sort of like mimicking an accent or I'm pretty bad at like real accents. Like I can't do a real British accent, but I can do like Mrs. Doubtfire is like, hello. Like I, 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 I have nothing. I have nothing um, at all. Um, but I, I do think it, First, it just comes from having fun, which is such a silly answer, but it really, really is true that like all of my best things that, or when I say my best things, the things I like the most, um, come from either actively having fun or trying to figure out why something isn't fun and where the, the blockage or the injury is. Um, and that is like, that's how I know how to do it now, but I don't record the voices when I do them. Um, and I think it's just too embarrassing. Like if I come up with a new voice, I'm just not going to grab my voice memo and make a voice memo. Although I will say there's a song in Marcel the Shell that he sings towards the end. Um, if people haven't heard it, I sort of don't want to spoil the surprise because it is deeply random. Um, but it's a song that I recorded at like two in the morning when I was singing covers to myself as Marcel and um, we were about a year into recording the movie and I sent the voice memo to Dean and asked, like, is there any way we could use this? Because I actually think it sounds really good. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know, though. Also, that's that's very fascinating that you sometimes just sing covers as Marcel. Do you have particular favorites that you would go to? Oh, my gosh. I have a lot. I love Marcel because I think his singing voice is like better than mine. You know, like I really <laughs> do think. And um like I love to sing Dionne Warwick. Um, oh I love yes, Loretta Marcel Lynn. and I have Marcel and I have that in common. All Who right. Doesn't? <laughs> when I was a little girl, and I would be like, we had water skiing at camp. I have no idea why I ever even tried it. I hate taking physical risks, but for some reason I did it. And I would be behind the boat, and the only thing that would calm me down is singing. Like keep, keep shining, keep smiling, keep smiling, keep oh. shining. Which, which what goes first? No, and you can always count on me. That's what friends are for. That's what I would sing behind the boat. And Marcel sings that. And I think it's really good. <laughs> it makes me wish we got Gladys Knight and Elton in this movie too, but that's all right. No, I w my, my dream is like an album of covers with Marcel, mm. but in a duet with the original artist. I think that would be mm. like so cool. Yeah. I would listen to that. That, that sounds really sweet. I, Keep uh, Shining should be the name yeah. of the album. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Keep Shining. Marcel and <laughs> <laughs> Um I I wanna ask you a bit too about um, you know, your your stand up because you know, you you have you've had this project for so long. Um and now um is stand up still like a thing that you enjoy as much as, you know, like I think a lot of people remember um you had Big Terrific, you know, with Max Silvestri and Gabe Leadbit, and then you did your yeah. own stand up. But like is that is that a thing that you still enjoy as much have you been like excited to get back to it now that people are back um in public spaces again or have you just been so focused on uh, making this project oh no i'm definitely excited to get back to it I, I do think the pandemic was a great break for me i i am kind of that person that like even if i have a dinner plan with my favorite person and they're like i have to cancel i'm like oh great, I'll just stay home and do nothing. Like I, I, I love a cancellation. Um, it has nothing, it has nothing to do ever with the person. It's just, um, I actually just think it's from that weird trembling, um, like shyness combine, like laziness combination that I have. But, um, I really missed stand up 
And not having the pandemic, you know, not having a stand-up to do during the pandemic also means there's a backlog of experience that I haven't, like, funneled through the mic. And um, and I also feel like, I don't know, I like to try to get real. But now, now the stuff that I'll be talking about, in, I mean, I'd like to make a next another stand-up special um, if they'll let me, if someone will let me. Um, and I, I think that what will be cool about it is that it will tell a story backwards, like from now. You know, there's no way for me to go into a room or get up on a stage and not say like, oh, yeah, I had a baby during the pandemic. I like exploded my vagina with a mask on. And that is something <laughs> that is like I, I remember about myself and I kind of have to like call it out like, it's a positive thing. It used to be that after I moved to LA, after getting fired from SNL, that I would go into any meeting and be like, I know I got fired. And everyone would be like, we don't care. Nobody cares about you. Nobody cares. But it's the opposite <laughs> with having a baby that they're like, actually, people do care. And it's a nice thing. And, and it's the best thing in, in general that uh, has happened to me in my life. So I think the special would go from like having a baby, but then to kind of talk about like how I got there because my last special ended up ended with me like literally saying I'm I'm so disappointed in all men that now I just like masturbate to the moon because there's like nothing left <laughs> and, and it's like wait hold on then how did you how did you get here and I just I'm excited to do it but I also think um I'm scared because a lot of it will be having to fashion things that are ugly to me or embarrassing or shameful into like a bit of um, beauty and fun. And I think that's like why I do stand up to repurpose the things that I really say don't belong and that I think they feel bad about me and um, not make fun of myself, but truly just like repurpose them, like just find a way to to make them into something new. And And if people can laugh at them while they also love you rather than laughing at you in ridicule, I think I think you like give it a new place to to live, you know. Is there a particular emotional experience in that universe right now you're having trouble converting into comedy? Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, it's really hard to talk about um, feeling like you're not enough, like a feeling that comes from you that like like when I met my husband, I was like so pumped about him and also so. Um, I'm trying to find other words than like insecure or jealous because they weren't about the other people. They were about me. I felt like really frightened about the um, like the world of social media, like really weirded out that at this point you can meet a total stranger and they have this weird online connection or portal that's supposed to be innocuous to like everyone they've ever maybe like slept with or known and that they get to like still see pictures of that person like in their bikini on their like vacation to Thailand and like how weird that <laughs> is like like how weird it is but maybe it's only weird to me and there's something wrong with me and um you know so like starting to make jokes about like how painful it is to not be able to accept the way our world functions and like how do you build your own self-confidence when there's also a part of you that's like you're so weak you're so insecure just whatever and like I'm, I don't know, like I, I'm, I'm reluctant to say any of the things that I'm toying around with because I'm still like, maybe it's bad and I'm easily discouraged. So usually like the way I make a joke is to say it for the very first time on stage, the way that it comes to me, because usually that's like how I want to please people. So I'll, I don't know, like so far I've been right on. 
<laughs> but maybe this is when I start to truly eat shit. I don't know. Um, I, I watched all of Hacks. I like ate every episode up, like cried uh -uh. through every episode. Love it so much. Relate deeply to Gene Smart's character, even though I'm, I'm 40. I'm not like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not like, I'm not like that far along but um yeah i just think the things like i just want to make i want to talk about the things that i'm that i that i know that in my life i i've settled now and i'm happy i feel safe and good and i just want to talk about what it used to be like when it was bad because i don't know from everything i've learned it's so cool to get past a fear but you're kind of a fool if you think it's not going to come back and tap you on the shoulder again somewhere down the line. Okay. Ominous, yet true. Yeah, yeah I think so, though. I think so. <laughs> Sorry. Ooh. Yeah. Light Crypt nah. Keeper vibes. Yeah. I know, nah, but just... I always have them a little bit. I always have them a little bit. Like, I'm just always my at my worst when I'm like, oh, man, I thought it was over this. And then nah. it comes back. I'm just imagining, like, a hand from, like, a creepy, like, Goosebumps cover. I don't know, like... Yeah, goosebumps. Just, just, right. just reaching out and touching you. Hello. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I la I lastly just want to say that um, I am excited that you are um, included in the pantheon of um, people who've played Harley Quinn, one of my favorite All characters. All right. So Gaga, uh, Margot Robbie, and you. I know. Just a touch of me, though. Just, it's <laughs> just about, like, about seven lines. <laughs> but I mean, I I'll mean, take it. I'll take that, it. That might be all the lines that Gaga has in Joker, too, for all we yeah, know. Right. Since it's a musical. So who knows? It is. I don't know anything about what's going on. She's going to be in that movie? I'll see it. The She's um. I'll see it. She 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 she's in heavy talks, as they say, to be um Harley Quinn opposite Joaquin Phoenix in a musical sequel to Joker. Wow! <laughs> Look what they did. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like something that happened at a drunk general, does oh it not? What if what if we turned it into a musical? You know, it's really. I mean, and and maybe it will be so wonderful i mean i'll i'll go and see it um but i i didn't know that and also i've never heard i mean maybe i've heard it and i just didn't keep it in my mind but the phrase heavy talks is like <laughs> wow that's so titillating i would love to be in some heavy talks <laughs> heavy <laughs> talks sounds like a yeah. 80s film starring i don't know like rob lowe and yeah, Steven Seagal. Yeah, heavy yeah. talks. Yeah, yeah heavy but... talks. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here, Jenny. And congrats on the film. It is truly exceptional. Uh, and congrats on the long journey to getting it made into a feature film, finally. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. Keep it. Lewis, what is yes. your keep it? 
I just want to say there's a lot less suspense when it's just the two of us. When we're like passing the hat and we're, you know, there were three and it was a bunch of keep it's, it really felt conspiratorial. Now it just seems like two gay guys bitching, which is fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, it works for Las Culturistas. Does it? My keep it this week. <laughs> I don't know why it's fun to clown on them. They're, they're, they're like my friends. I don't know. Um, uh, my keep it this week is to all of the promotional stills or just candid stills we're getting of the Barbie movie. Not that I don't like looking at them. So far, we've gotten Ryan Gosling in Malibu Ken gear, bright blonde hair, denim vest, uh, plasticine abs, looking cute, looking like somebody's twink husband who gets the Maltese in the divorce. But here's the problem. We're already getting all the candy-colored looks from this movie. This movie does not come out for another fucking year. I have the weird feeling we are going to OD on the promo materials for this, what I'm assuming is going to be a great movie because Greta Gerwig is in charge of it. A couple of people have noted this on Twitter. It feels like we're going to get a version of the Brady Bunch movie where the Kens and Barbies are in their own doll universe and everybody else looks at them with contempt and confusion. And I hope that's the case because that's obviously a really fun vibe. But man, we are still so far out from this that I just hope it's still novel by the time it comes out. My God, 2023? Words I don't even like to say out loud, let alone realize that's when we're getting the fucking Barbie movie. I'm trying to remember um, what other recent film um, had it where it was just like we just constantly kept getting stills for it. And well, you know what one version was is Joker, which we yes, got stills for yes. for fucking ever. We kept seeing him, kept seeing him just like dancing on stairs, being like, "What the fuck is happening in this film?" And then we saw the film, and at least we know Barbie will not be like a Todd Phillips film. Oh my God! No, your lips to God's ears. That's a keep it up. Keep it up to not resembling Joker <laughs> in any shape or form. Speaking of keep it up, there was a movie announced today: a new Pedro Almodovar film. What? Our fave. Uh, and it is another short film. Uh, I love him in his era of making short films now. Yeah, he did this one recently with Tilda Swinton called The Human Voice, which is just, mm -hmm. I'm going to call it a demented take on The Sims. <laughs> uh, this is going to be a 30-minute Western called The Strange Way of Life, which is described as his answer to Brokeback Mountain. What? Oh, my God. First of all, that seems saucy and um, a little the, underhanded, which I love. The two, Manu Rios is co-starring in it. Great. Uh, alongside two of the only men I will allow to play gay, Pedro Pascal and Ethan Hawke. Oh, that's they're on the list. All right. I'm going to I'm going to form my own at a, after a certain point. Straight men I want to see play game who are capable of it. I guess Andrew Garfield already did it because he did it on Broadway. Has he done it on the silver screen yet? Well, he's done it in our apartment. OK, I don't know what that means, nor will I ask. <laughs> um, all right. That's that's all of your keep it just to the Barbie stills. I just am worried we're going to get burnt out on this Crayola Wonderland. And I would prefer, you know, I, I think all movies should be this color, let alone just one that's about Barbie. So I hope you, we still love it a year from now. You know what I will say as a known faggot um, who grew up in the era we did? 
Never had a Barbie fascination. Me neither. Me neither. Nor did I have even kind of like a gay curiosity about like those types of doll. I know that's like half of gay men's childhoods. Um, but I, I, I don't know. And I can't really explain it because I would play with like, quote unquote, action figures and stuff. Like I had all toys of like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Street Fighter and stuff like that. And I was obsessed with the Chun-Li doll. Mm-hmm. So there was like a a girl doll element to my childhood. But Barbie never did it for me. I guess I don't really I didn't really understand what Barbie was up to, like just getting into a car sometimes. I did that already. And she had her one black friend and then her cousin Skipper. There, se- there seemed like a lot of like high school dynamics going on. And I already mm-hmm. had enough to figure out. Like I didn't like I remember the Barbie cartoons and things too. like never even watched them. No. I, I, and then the, the, there came like the Barbie computer games and stuff. Yeah. Maybe I, I had three brothers. Maybe I never even allowed myself to consider that Barbie could be a part of my playtime universe because I was too busy with whatever the fuck they had bought. Lego, everything. Yeah. I feel like I know more about the extended Malibu Stacy universe than I do Barbie. Yeah. What's going on there? Uh, maybe The Simpsons ruined Barbie for us, actually. Mm, but you be. didn't watch The Simpsons as a kid. So that's not even correct for you. No. I, my mom made me afraid of the Simpsons. She had heard it was whatever satanic. My mom became a rad person eventually, but she was for like ten seconds Piper Laurie and Carrie. <laughs> that explains so. Who, much by the way, about is you. still with us. The great Piper Laurie still here. Yes, <laughs> she spoke at something a couple weeks ago, and I was like in tears hearing that she was just out and about and being cool. Anyway, Ira, uh, what is your keep uh, it this week? Pi- Piper Laurie's still alive. Find her on keep it in six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm sure there's an I'm sure there's an older actress like um AOL uh, message board that they still sure. chat on <laughs> where they're like, have you heard of this podcast? Keep it. Because they're all just coming on it. Right. No, Mary Kay Place is like, fuck, it's gonna be me next. Mm. Um my keep it goes to the BT Awards. Oh, what, what, I didn't see them this year. And I do watch them every year. Routinely, I think they have the best performances. They do usually have the best performances. I'm still just mad about the entire Little Nas X situation. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's, it's not, it's, and I do want to point out that we at least got out of it um, his new song, uh, Life of the Party, um, which is fantastic and starts with him chanting, fuck BET. Uh, which I find is um, hilarious. Uh, I like when um, musicians or artists just sort of like start hating on like a network. Oh, or yeah. Like no, a that's conglomerate. Ve- that's very uh, Neil Young, this notes for you <laughs> with his snarling MTV put downs. Uh, and I feel like uh, it reminds me of like when um, Kanye West had like fuck SNL and the whole cast in his song, but then changed it. Once he got on SNL, I feel like Lil Nas X would not change his tune. And I actually don't know how this ever becomes reconciled um, because it's still this idea that, um, you know, the black network, which should be supporting him, um, isn't supporting him, you know? And it's um, it's the same way, you know, like we weren't getting awards for Pose, you know? It's because it's like, it's, it's gay shit. So it's like, it's not being supported in the way that it should be. Uh, and he, he had a lot of stuff to say um, in the press 
to about how it wasn't just um, the not being nominated. It was, you know, them um, last year during his performance, you know, like sort of like making him swear that he wasn't um, worshiping Satan uh, and then saying that like his performance was um, like the most awful thing they'd ever seen after he like kissed a man on stage, like once he got off stage. So it's, it's been like a year of awfulness and then um just to also like have a um tribute in their in memoriam to um this you know internet star kevin samuels um who mostly had like a lot of videos with titles like women should let men use them and how much does your submission cost and modern women are average at best um that felt like a slap in the face um just mostly because this is what BT does. And it reminds me of the BT I grew up with. And I thought that we had sort of moved past that. Yeah, that feels very, very old. I mean, it just sounds like, I don't know. I, I, Tipper Gore is the name that's coming to mind. She's not the exact parallel, but like somebody from the 80s condemning you for listening to whatever gay thing was happening at the time, Boy George or something. I would condemn people for listening to Boy George Lewis. <laughs> oh come on i'll tumble for you that's the song you know boy george used to have you blocked on twitter really does that well, mean he's on twitter now i think so boy george well because boy george uh was in real housewives of beverly hills for a long spell because he what? was the close friend of housewife dorit kemsley uh and her husband um pk whose full name is paul kemsley uh was culture club's manager and boy george lived in their guest house okay that is information <laughs> you would think i'd have known my day is different now did he look like he did during the taboo era with rosie o'donnell where he had like the black drips coming down his head not that horrific okay because that really was a shock for the ages <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, so like I didn't, I didn't like him on the show at the time. So I tweeted Got about it. it, and then I was blocked. Oh, okay, okay. Well, you you brought it on yourself. Now I understand. Well, now yeah. I'm going to be listening to Boy George the rest of the day and think about how he hates your guts. Sounds like a good day for you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm inching closer to making you watch a single episode of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Get this: last weekend I was in San Francisco. And my friend Alex, who I always go up to see, is obsessed with the entire Housewives universe. So I did see a full episode of whatever this new vacation thing is with Dorinda. Real Housewives Ultimate Girls Trip to Ex-Wives Club. Yes. Okay. Is it really an <laughs> ultimate girls trip if they're just fucking sitting around? Is it? <laughs> Don't lie to me, Andy Cohen. The last one was a trip to Turks and Caicos. Uh, and this one now is like Bluestone Manor, which Dorinda um, owns. Um, it's in Massachusetts and the Berkshires. And uh, these are ex-housewives um, who are now um, like all gathered. Um, oh, my God. I need your thoughts on uh, Dorinda. Uh, Dorinda, I, I was wondering why she would have been kicked off the show. I, I don't know any of the lore of Housewives. She drinks out, too much and right. gets messy, uh, and it's just sort of like she was, was sort of removed from the show for sort of for her own good, to be honest. No, her drinking was who's afraid of Virginia Woolf level. I mean, I, I, you could see it from the, the last seats in the theater. Um, 
the, no, but it was weird to see like Jill Zarin. I watched the first season of New York. So that's mm-hmm. like a name that kind of looms large to me. And not bringing anything. Vicky, I can't believe we had her on TV that long. Not bringing anything. Talking, I mean, did you did you see her talking about vaccines? Vicky or Jill? Vicky. Oh, no. I, I mean, I don't really need to see her opine on anything, to be honest. So I liked the religious woman on this season. Phaedra Park. Things to say. Yeah. Oh, yes. Phaedra. Phaedra funny. She is very sweet. If you forget the fact that the reason she was fired from Real Housewives of Atlanta is because she did make up a rumor that Candy Burris tried to drug and rape someone in her dungeon. I mean, I'm simply speechless. The writer of No Scrubs <laughs> going ahead and being just a full criminal and, I guess, murderer. Yeah. Uh, so that came out at uh, a Real Housewives reunion um, that Phaedra was the one who made up that rumor. So that's she's been gone from the show ever since then. And then were you happy to see Ava Marcel? Yes, though I, I hadn't missed her. I will say that as someone who watched her on Housewives of Atlanta, she was always pregnant, and so she was boring, but she just gets stoned on this trip, and so I find her very pleasant and enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, like this, it feels like a very COVID-era show. They're like playing ring toss indoors to pass the time. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad that Alex Merriman was good for one thing, and that's making <laughs> you watch Real Housewives. If if he has one legacy in this life, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's also going to be a heart surgeon but arguably this is his more towering achievement i wouldn't let him operate on me oh uh, well it's not really up to you if you're in the in his hands after a while so, he's gi- yeah. he's giving me izzy okay i mean, I mean he's, cu- <laughs> he's cutting lvax <laughs> uh all right that's our show this week thanks to the great jenny slate for being here god what a pleasure yeah uh and we will see you not next week, because right. we're off again. I have to say, I feel bad that we did this, but guys, I'm going to be in Fire Island. You don't re- want me reporting from the trenches in whatever <laughs> state I'm in. <laughs> uh, so we'll see you again in two weeks. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Fertel. Our editor is Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed.